All of us have patients that can be challenging in many ways, and one of the areas that is particularly challenging is when we deal with patients who have obsessive-compulsive disorder, because clearly there are issues there that have to be dealt with, but at the same time, you have to walk a fine line in trying to help the patients deal with the concerns they have and help them take it seriously, and not only that, provide some options. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. My guest is Dr. Jill Fenske. She is a clinical assistant professor at the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School in Ann Arbor, and she has written an article in the American Family Physician back in 2009, which I first noticed and read and learned a lot about obsessive-compulsive disorder and then wanted to follow up with questions. But I understand, Jill, you also recently updated that article that will probably be coming out shortly. So first of all, welcome to the program. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. How do you define obsessive-compulsive disorder from your standpoint? Well, it's a neuropsychiatric disorder, and it's characterized by recurrent distressing thoughts. Those are the obsessions and repetitive behaviors or mental rituals that are performed to reduce anxiety. Um, Those would be the compulsions. Um, In most cases, it's a chronic illness, um, and it does have serious negative effects on quality of life for patients and their level of function. DSM-5, which uh, was uh, released within the last couple of years, now recognizes OCD as a disorder that's distinct from anxiety, and it's grouped in its own category of uh, obsessive-compulsive related disorders. A couple of the points that you make that I think are important are, first of all, that it is fairly common, about 1.6% according to the statistics you gave us, but in addition, uh, more than 50% of the people who get OCD actually are afflicted um, by their mid-20s. Yeah, it really is um, an illness that has an onset very early in life, usually in adolescence. When we look at different treatments and approaches for it, um, one of them clearly is using the SSRIs. Have they been effective? Is that the direction you choose to go when you're dealing with this? Well, um, options for first-line treatment would include either an SSRI if the patient desires pharmacologic treatment, but uh, psychological treatments are also very effective. And uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, in particular, a type called exposure response prevention, is really the first-line psychological uh, therapy, and that's also very effective. So either starting with the exposure response prevention therapy or an SSRI is an option, as well as starting both simultaneously depending on the severity of the illness and what the patient's preferences are. Yeah, I was going to say, I think all of us, a lot of psychiatric uh, difficulties, I think many of us suffer from to varying degrees. And I would think like for obsessive compulsive disorder, I'm sure most of us will say, oh, did I lock the door? I don't remember if I did. But I guess if someone has OCD, they're consistently trying to check it again and again and again. Is that the primary difference, at least at that level? Yeah, you know, um, everybody does have intrusive thoughts at one time or another, and sometimes those thoughts can even be, you know, quite disturbing. But for um, the typical person, they're able to easily dismiss that thought as, oh, you know, just something essentially without meaning that popped into their head. Um, And what happens in obsessive-compulsive disorder is that uh, the, the person actually recognizes that thought as something important and something to be fought against. So if an intrusive thought pops in their head, they they actually try to resist it, and that creates a cycle that actually has the thought coming back again and again. One of the things you talk about is that 
compulsions are repetitive activities or mental rituals, and they're designed to counteract the anxiety and the issues associated with the compulsion. Does that mean it's a it's a conscious thing that people are doing? Is it something they can't prevent? Where does it fit along in that line? Some people will describe compulsions as being almost involuntary. It's not exactly involuntary, the the but, but over time it does become almost an automatic behavior, whether it's uh, an activity a person does or a mental ritual like uh, – you know, saying a phrase over and over or a prayer. Um, and so individuals do feel very strongly compelled to complete the compulsions and to the point that they're extremely uh, hard to resist. I mean, the compulsions we always think about are people like hand washing and things like that. But I was mm-hmm. interested to see on the list, you know, and certainly the cable industry has made a program out of this, the whole idea of saving trash or unnecessary items, hoarding, that that's a compulsion as well? Yeah, so hoarding is identified as uh, one of those obsessive-compulsive spectrum disorders now, and uh, it's really distinct from uh, the typical obsessive-compulsive disorder in several ways, one of the ways being that a lot of patients with hoarding disorder don't have um, a good insight into their disorder, where uh, the typical patient with obsessive-compulsive disorder has very good insight. Um, and so the hoarding really is a compulsive type of behavior, and uh, some of those patients have comorbid obsessive-compulsive disorder as well, so they may experience the obsessive thoughts, but many of them don't have the obsessive thoughts. It's more of the compulsive uh, hoarding behavior. It was also very interesting, at least when you know, in, in going over the information when I was reading about it, it was talking about a lot of the different things that people do, you know, the wide range. And one is asking for reassurance. People who consistently need reassurance, that also could potentially be a compulsion? Yes, yeah. It's actually a very common uh, compulsion um, and something that as primary care physicians we may see amongst our patients. So if you do have a patient who engages in compulsive reassurance seeking that, um, might be a red flag for you that perhaps they do have obsessive compulsive disorder, but it's also an issue for friends and family of the patient. Sometimes they're the object of uh, the repeat, repetitive reassurance seeking as and, well. So and so, then family may notice these things as being somewhat abnormal, and maybe might also like reach out to you and say there's something going on. Dr. Jill Fenske is joining us on Primary Care today here on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough. Dr. Fenske is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School, has an interest in this area. And how did you develop your interest? What was it about OCD that kind of led you to study more and, and be more involved in learning more about it? Well, I've always been interested in psychiatry and behavioral health, and that's uh, been a focus of learning for me in my practice as a family physician. And, uh, you know, another interest just happened to be that I think many of us as physicians have some of the uh, obsessive uh, type traits. I I think when we uh, look at our own uh, characteristics in terms of, uh, you know, being somewhat perfectionistic and uh, wanting to get things right. And, uh, you know, a lot of patients with obsessive compulsive disorder actually have excessive responsibility and very conscientious type people. And, so I think, you know, I, I just recognize those type of traits and uh, wanting to learn more about that as well. And when you learned more about it and you looked into it, obviously there's a difference potentially between those who are highly functional and those who have a, sure. get to a point where it, it really impacts their life. For those who are highly functional, what is the difference? Is it just a spectrum of OCD? Yeah, 
good. It really, it really is. Um, you know, I, I think uh, it's interesting when you look at family studies as well. There is a genetic component uh, to obsessive compulsive disorder, and um, you know, sometimes patients uh, who have the full-fledged, uh, you know, disorder or meet the criteria for OCD, you know, will will recognize that in family members uh, there have been traits or, you know, various manifestations. And, and some people do have some of these traits that are very, you know, functional or maybe never meet criteria for the disorder, yet in times of stress or, um, you know, for women um, in the postpartum uh, and uh, peripartum period, uh, sometimes those type of factors can trigger, you know, more clinical symptoms. When people develop this, is this something that goes on and gets worse as time goes on? Obviously, I'm assuming without treatment or intervention, or do some people spontaneously do better after a period of time? Well, it does tend to be a chronic disorder for the vast majority of people, and it it is something that tends to not improve without treatment, you know, if you actually meet criteria for the uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder. Um, It can wax and wane in intensity, and fluctuate, like we just talked about, in terms of times of stress or other um, major life events. But it does tend to be chronic, waxing and waning if, if it's not treated. One of the things I noticed, and this was new to me, and probably if I had not been reading about it, I wouldn't have noticed it, but when you give the SSRIs as treatment, there's usually a larger dose necessary than for some of the other reasons we use SSRIs. Why is that the case? Well, it's a very highly uh, serotonergic uh, um, pathway that, that's thought to um, be the etiology for OCD. They're now learning that other brain chemicals probably are involved, but early on, um, OCD was uh, recognized as being highly having a highly specific response to serotonin medications, and so medicines that affect serotonin are, are very effective, but it does just uh, appear that much higher dosages of the medications are needed to have an effect for some patients, and I'm not sure that we understand why that is. But um, the other key thing to note with medication therapy is that it can take a much longer time to see an effect with an SSRI as well in OCD compared to depression or generalized anxiety. Um, So medication trials with SSRIs should take place for at least 8 to 12 weeks, and at least 4 to 6 of those weeks should be at the maximum tolerated dose uh, to really give it an adequate trial. You know, talking about the medications, you actually led me up to a good point. At what stage do you feel you reach out for help, Uh, maybe to get a psychiatrist, counseling, that sort of thing? I'm sure a lot of it has to do with your own comfort level as a primary care physician, but when do you usually reach out and get assistance? At what point? Well, for patients that have severe symptoms who are really incapacitated, not able to engage in their normal daily activities. I think given that severity of illness, a psychiatric consult would be warranted right from the beginning, but also for patients who have moderate to severe symptoms who aren't responding to the first-line therapies. Um, There are a lot of options for second-line therapy, but I think at that point it would be wise to have them see a psychiatrist. Um, But uh, another really important uh, thing to know about OCD is that, unfortunately, there's a shortage of uh, specialists who have good familiarity with treating OCD, in particular the psychological treatments. Uh, so that is a, a big problem um, right now in the U.S. with OCD treatment um, and trying to actually find a good uh, 
uh, center to, to get these patients the help they need. It's interesting you bring that up, too, because earlier um, in this past month, we did an interview where we talked about bipolar disorder and a family doctor dealing with bipolar disorder. And that was one of the reasons it came up. Like I said, how did you get interest? Just like I asked you. And, and uh, this, this physician said, well, to tell you the truth, I didn't have the resources in my community. I realized if I didn't step up, no one was going to, and perhaps I'm not perfect at this, but I would learn whatever I could and help in whatever way I could because we just didn't have the psychiatric support in my community. Yeah, yeah, this definitely. Um, I mean, I, being at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, we do have uh, uh, many specialists nearby, but um, across the country, it's a big problem with OCD and uh, particularly finding the therapists who've been trained in the exposure response prevention therapy. And that's obviously so I, an issue. So, mm-hmm. so when you did it, did you just start reading more about it? Obviously, you can consult with the doctors you work with at a big university center, too, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, when I did the research for the review article, I met with our uh, uh, one of our therapists here at U of M who specializes in OCD treatment, and that was very helpful. Um, and, you know, just doing a literature review and and uh, speaking to other primary care physicians, too, to to get some insight. I also do want to say that there's a really excellent book uh, by Dr. Ian Osborne called Tormenting Thoughts and Secret Rituals that is a, a good resource for patients, but also a very good read for any physicians who are interested in obsessive compulsive disorder. Are there things we didn't bring up that you think are really important that you'd like to address with an audience of physicians like this? Well, I really think the key thing is that OCD has so many different manifestations. And so uh, learning more about the different ways it can present, the different type of obsessions patients can experience that aren't really the classic, you know, contamination type of OCD that that people are aware of, Um, you know, uh, religious or moral obsessions or um, uh, disturbing images and and some of the more mental rituals that maybe may not be quite as overt or easily recognized. So just um, having that broader awareness of OCD and keeping it in mind as a possibility for patients since it is really quite a common uh, illness. Uh, one qu- last question I have is, do we see it in children that often? We mentioned how it appears in the 20s. Is it something we should be looking at in, in children you know, 8, 10, 12 years of age? Um, yeah, it, it does have a variety um, that is an early onset uh, disorder, and uh, it tends to happen in boys more often than girls when that early onset form occurs, um, and it often is accompanied by tics, uh, motor tics or other um, psychiatric comorbidities, so it definitely does occur in children. And for children, the psychological therapies are really effective and preferred as the first line. There's also been controversy about a disorder referred to as PANDAS, which is the autoimmune uh, uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms associated with strep, but that is actually a very controversial diagnosis um, right now, and the term PANDAS is falling out of favor in favor of uh, something called CANS, C-A-N-S, which is Childhood Acute Neuropsychiatric Symptoms, which is a little bit more nonspecific since the association with strep is becoming controversial. But a lot of parents will ask about that. I've run into several families who have children with OCD, and they are very interested in that aspect of it. 
Dr. Jill Fenske, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us. We run out of time, but I really appreciate your insights here on primary care today. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash primary care today to download the podcast and learn more on the series. Thank you for listening. And again, Dr. Fenske, thanks for joining us. Thank you.